This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. And thanks to uh, Richard Duggan there, buddy, right back at you. Good Thursday afternoon, everyone, if you can call it that, uh, weather-wise around these parts. I really don't spend much time on social media if I don't have to, but the couple of times I had to duck in and out a couple of times today, um, I noticed a meme being shared there a lot. It's basically a reminder to... uh, Claudette, maybe you saw this, to change your clocks this weekend from sunshine to happiness to misery and despair. I saw that. You know what? It's, it's funny hard to that miss that one. It's all <laughs> you should bring. I'm, it's funny you should bring that up because it's I remember screenshotting it and uh, <laughs> sending it to my husband. I thought it was great. So it wasn't just me. It's, no. uh, it seems to be the popular meme for the day, for the weekend, maybe for the season. Um, anyway, that about sums it up in terms of the gray, wet, snowy, rainy, windy day we have here today in Metro. Not to mention, um, yeah, some impressive gusts, actually. So all I can say to that is hold on to your vehicle doors um, and you're welcome. So this is News Talk. And by now, you know that uh, Linda Swain's off today um, <clears throat> and tomorrow. Uh, took a couple of days there. And I'm Brian Callahan in for Linda. And um, so this is News Talk. And uh, coming up on the show... Um, I had a chat, just got off the phone a short time ago, uh, his time being uh, tight as it is uh, before he goes into the House of Commons. NDP, federal NDP me- leader Jagmeet Singh uh, and I had a chat earlier about all things carbon tax and others. And uh, really the odds of um, how much longer the NDP will keep this alliance with the federal liberals, uh, they're in quite a spot. It's a delicate little balancing act, especially with the NDP in Alberta sort of nipping at their toes and there seems to be some conflict there. So um, this whole issue of the carbon tax and um, sort of the, the term, it's already overused, but the carve out of uh, removing um, the carbon tax from our home heating fuel here in Atlantic Canada, most of Atlantic Canada, I'm not sure if uh, most of it applies to New Brunswick. I'll have to check on that. I saw something today and I'm not 100% sure if all of New Brunswick is in on this, but I do know that the West and everywhere else is uh, looking for a little bit of the same break. Uh, But, of course, the argument has been that, um, you know, the oil, the home heating oil that we burn here is much more uh, destructive and harmful to the climate change, to the uh, to climate than um, than, say, propane or natural gas. So it's a fine line. Uh, They must have seen that coming. In any event, uh, Trudeau seems to be sticking by his guns, and there is a vote in the House of Commons today on a motion. Um, I'm not sure if it will happen before uh, the end of the show or not, but the Conservatives are trying to force a vote. They, they have forced a vote on a motion that calls on government to freeze the federal carbon tax on all forms of home heating, at least until the next election. So um, uh, Polyev, Pierre Polyev, the federal Conservative leader, is calling it a carbon tax election. And I'm not surprised because he smells blood here now on this and the fracture that's coming with it with different areas of the country. And nobody wants that. Um, We're only used to that when um, the referendum talk starts in Quebec. But uh, lately, uh, the West has been staking their stake about all of this sort of thing and um, none too happy, especially when there's a liberal government in. So we'll see where that goes. I had a chat with Jagmeet Singh and I'll get to that um, eventually in the show. Uh, but first, um, and I would argue certainly more importantly, um, we're going to take a short break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, Claire's Law and <clears throat> Women's Shelter Director and uh, the police and the Justice Minister and 
um, the Minister for uh, Women and Gender Equality. Um, this, this Claire's Law went into force, is now into force. Uh, and of course, it's all about um, legislation to help people find, you know, uh, find out if they're at risk of domestic violence, basically, from a current or former partner. So this is a, a discreet way, a, a private way of at least trying to be proactive before these awful things happen involving interpersonal violence. And uh, so it's called the Interpersonal Violence Disclosure Protocol Act. Um, it was unveiled today. It's also been enacted, officially proclaimed uh, in the House. And uh, we'll get more on that uh, right after the break. Um, we'll hear from the Justice Minister and the Minister for Women and Gender Equality and as well uh, representatives from the RCMP and the RNC as to how it will all play out. I'm Brian Callahan here on News Talk. We'll be right back. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Brian Callahan back with you on the program this afternoon. And as mentioned before the break, so Claire's Law has now been enacted. Um, the actual legislation was passed about four years ago, and this was very much uh, former Justice Minister Andrew Parsons' baby. Um, back in the day, he uh, he did the hard work on this to get it uh, into the legislature, but for various reasons, and no one wanted to make excuses today as far as COVID went, but uh, there were a number of things that delayed it, but it was officially announced and proclaimed this morning. Now, this is named, of course, after a British woman, English woman by the name of Claire Wood. Uh, back in, I think it was 2009, um, she was murdered by her ex-partner. And... Um, uh, the aim now, of course, is to try to prevent that from ever happening again um, by giving the police, I guess, uh, the best heads up they can from the people who might know the soonest as to whether there might be a problem. Now, there's a number of issues of how you go about this. There's an online application. You can actually call as well uh, to provide the information that they need. But uh, it's a very discreet and private way of trying to give the police basically a heads up that uh, there could be a problem, and it could be a problem pending. So um, today at uh, McMoran Center on McSheffrey Lane there off Bell's Turn in St. John's, at the McMoran Center, um, we had representatives from police and uh, law enforcement, RCMP, RNC, and uh, we'll get to them in just a moment. But first, uh, we are, um, Pam Parsons, with the Minister of the Office of Women and Gender Equality, uh, sort of um, emceed this event this morning, and she introduced Justice and Public Safety Minister John Hogan. Interpersonal violence in this province and in this country has been unfortunately trending upwards for several years, and that is only what is reported to police. Based on data from 2017, the RNC received over 1,500 intimate partner violence referrals a year. So far in 2023, there have been almost 1,700. Our government believes people at risk have a right to know if their partners have histories of violence or abuse. We know more can be done to protect individuals so they can make informed decisions about their safety. And today, I'm so pleased to announce the Interpersonal Violence Disclosure Protocol Act, or more commonly known as Claire's Law. It is now in force. Applications can be made online through www.gov.nl.ca slash Claire's Law, or in person at your nearest police station. What this law does is allow those feeling unsafe in an intimate partner relationship to request information from the police about their risk of experiencing violence. It legalizes who can make a request for information, what can be disclosed, and how that information will be protected once it is disclosed. 
By proclaiming Claire's Law today, its regulations and protocol are now in force, and Newfoundland and Labrador is the third province in Canada to enact this type of important violence prevention tool. Claire's Law is meant to support those at risk of intimate partner violence while balancing the right to privacy. It is a proactive tool that provides applicants the right to ask and the right to know. The right to ask means an individual can request to find out about their risk of experiencing interper interpersonal violence. The right to know is when the police will proactively disclose information to an individual who is at risk of intimate partner violence. I can tell you that significant due diligence was taken to help determine how this protocol would be applied in our provincial context. Designing a law and protocol to support people in vulnerable and sometimes life-threatening situations is a process that should never be rushed. And we spent considerable time and resources consulting with other jurisdiction, jurisdictions, engaging our police forces, and working with stakeholder groups to find the appropriate balance. Safety is the ultimate goal, and those involved in this process need to know their personal information will be protected. Applicants can also designate a support person to act on their behalf or to accompany them in meetings with law enforcement officials. The process first took shape in 2019, and officials in justice and public safety, in consultation with the RNC, the RCMP, and other stakeholders, such as the Office of Women and Gender Equality, Violence Prevention, Prevention Groups, and Women's Advocates, worked diligently to make this law a reality. Thank you to the staff, specifically Charlene Simmons and Ellen Haskell, who are dedicated to this file, and to our police services who will administrate this program. I can assure you, they are making a difference in the lives of the individuals that we serve. I also acknowledge Minister Andrew Parsons, who during his time as Justice Minister, really pushed for this protocol to happen, and indeed got the ball rolling within the Department of Justice. Ladies and gentlemen, Claire's Law is not going to solve the problem of intimate partner violence, but it will empower those at risk to have this extra piece of information to help them feel safe. For survivors of intimate partner violence, the experience can be especially life-altering and the impact profound. The hope is that tools like Claire's Law will help us deal with an issue before it even begins. I encourage those at risk of experiencing intimate partner violence to go to gov.nl.ca slash Claire's Law for more information, and if, immediate, if in immediate danger, always dial 911. Again, as a government, we remain committed to making Newfoundland and Labrador a safe place for everyone. Thank you, Minister Hogan. And of course, thanks to Minister Parsons as well. I know how passionate he has been about this and working with him on this over the years. By preparing to proclaim into force the Interpersonal Violence Disclosure Protocol, or Claire's Law, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador is increasing the safety for individuals in intimate relationships who are at risk of violence from their partners. Claire's Law is named after Claire Wood, a British woman who was murdered by a former partner in 2009. And I know just by looking around the room here, we have people who have who've been on a very similar journey and who have been great advocates. The Woods family fought for a dis disclosure protocol that would enable individuals to obtain information from police about a partner's documented history of violence in hopes that they may safely leave relationships when a risk of violence may be present. As Minister Hogan highlighted, our province will become the third jurisdiction in Canada to implement Claire's Law. 
And that is the uh, Minister of Pam Parsons, their Minister of uh, Women and Gender Equality, um, speaking before her, of course, Justice Minister John Hogan regarding Claire's Law. Um, uh, and just, uh, you know, shortly after that, we, uh, the reporters, got a chance to um, put some of the other questions to law enforcement who were there. So we had the heads of the RCMP and, and RNC, superintendents of the RCMP and RNC brass who are in charge of these kinds of sections within the force. And um, uh, they were asked a few questions by reporters about how exactly this will work, about applications being put through for requests on information about their partners to find out whether or not they could be in some trouble. Um, so we'll begin, uh, let's see, so we spoke to RCMP Superintendent Kent Osmond with the RCMP, Inspector Tammy Madden with the RNC, and Superintendent Sharon Warren uh, with the RNC, starting with Superintendent uh, Kent Osmond with the Mounties. The hope is with this legislation that it will be a proactive tool that we can use and the, the uh, survivors and victims of intimate partner violence can use to uh, proactively involve threat assessment and make decisions based on the information we provide them. And hopefully over time that will reduce the burden on places like Kirby House. Uh, I guess there was some mention earlier of this number of uh, reported intimate partner violence is increasing. Can you speak to that increase and what you hope this legislation might be able to do about that? Well, I feel like this authorizes the RNC now to empower people to come and, and report intimate partner violence incidents to us. Um, you know, we want to work with the intimate partner violence unit. We want to work with those victims and survivors to make them safe. And, you know, we have a trauma-informed approach that, um, you know, we want to keep them safe. So the police are doing these disclosures, you know, what sort of, I guess, you talked about, um, I guess, their training to work with people who are, you know, maybe in these situations to, you know, properly, I guess, address these folks? We have a dedicated inter-partner violence unit that uh, understands the process, understands that, um, you know, the reporting looks different and may not necessarily be in the forefront. Uh, they could be looking at assault complaints, break and entry complaints, theft complaints, you know, uh, threats, and all that can speak to intimate partner violence. So that training allows them to look at a holistic assessment of what they're seeing come across their desk and identify that this may be an indicator of intimate partner violence. So this law, this new approach, the new ability will just expand on what they're already doing. When people fill out these applications, that data is going to be collected and, and taken care of. What sorts of, of use will you have for that data? So what happens is the application comes to the RNC and it automatically goes to our intimate partner volunteer unit. So we have a team there of officers and analysts. Can you say how many? Uh, we have two within the city, but we also have other officers trained within our other units in the Criminal Investigation Division. So they'll take that information. There's a confidentiality agreement, and of course we're, we're, we take the information as confidential. And um, we'll take that information, we'll assess it as needed, and we will meet with those people, those applicants, in the end and discuss the risks that may be there. Well, I mean, we know that intimate partner violence is underrepresented. I'm wondering, like, if someone has had several inquiries filed against them, but they don't maybe have a criminal record, maybe nobody has gone to the police about them, like, 
will will that be used in a, in a risk assessment? Yes, it will, and that's where the right to know comes in. So we have officers that review every file that comes into the RNC on a daily basis, and if we recognize there's something with an intimate partner, it's logged. So that's where the right to know comes in. So we can approach this person and say, hey, you know, there is some risk here. Um, we can deal with resources for them. We can help them possibly leave that relationship if needed. Are you concerned at all about the potential of the, the person in question that an application is filed against um, might find out and then the repercussions in the interim, the lag, the, you know, you know, if they find out it's being investigated, what kind of precautions can be taken to make sure that the person who made the application is safeguarded? Everything is confidential uh, from, from the application process to the feedback process. Uh, there are confidentiality agreements that are entered into. Um, Obviously, we can't control what is said after that, but the safeguards are in place so that the person that's being uh, queried is never aware of what, what was asked and what was answered. So if the person is never aware, but if the point comes where a criminal charge is laid, you, you deem that there is criminal charge warranted, then that person will be notified. And we all know that the court process takes the time after a charge is laid or an investigation starts. There is a lag. I mean, it can work its way through the courts. And that's a lot of the reason why these are underreported, because people don't want to go through that process. Then everybody's in the know. The court process, once a charge is laid, you're right, people know. But that's also part of our disclosure process to anybody that's inquiring. So if you're asking if... Are you asking if the charge is a result of the query being asked through Claire's Law? Yes, sir, absolutely. If you if you file this application, then it's on your radar. If a charge is warranted, given the, the complaint that the person has made, then that person obviously is contacted, the charge is laid. Right, but it's, it's two separate processes. This is a question of us being able to provide a citizen with a risk assessment for their personal benefit. A charge is a completely separate process where the person would be required to give a statement and provide evidence. And in that case, you're right. We can't, it cannot be confidential, but it's two separate processes entirely. So like, say if somebody puts in this application, within their application, when they're describing their relationship, they're describing physical abuse, which is a criminal act. And so then you have somebody telling you about this criminal act as a law enforcement agency, wouldn't you need to investigate that? Or would you have to tell that person they would need to make like a separate statement or a separate complaint? The, the right of choice is always with the complainant, with the applicant, with the victim survivor. So we would never force anybody through a court process unless they are uh, cooperative and they want that. So although they'll give us information, this process, Claire's Law states that they have a right to information, they have a right to the risk, but we will not uh, add to that risk to them to force them down a criminal complaint. What's the turnaround time? Like if somebody were to use the website today, uh, file an application, when could they expect to get information that could protect them? We give you a time, but I can tell you that we will complete those applications and assessments as soon as possible. It's too early to say, but any application that comes into the RCMP, and I'm sure with the RCMP, our RNC as well. Uh, we'll go directly to our interim partner violence unit, we'll be assessed and, and assign an investigator immediately. You mentioned that you know it would be up to the person that makes the complaint, but say if you're a woman with three kids and your partner is abusive and you mention this in your report, like that puts the kids in danger as well. 
you know, if the if the woman doesn't want to file a charge, wouldn't there be some onus on the police to do something in terms of like child protection as we well? We also work with community partners, so I mean, there's and we do risk assessments every single day within the RNC. Um, so you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to lay a charge, but we could use outside agencies to help those people. For example, CSSD with kids. So we would use those people to make those kids safe and ensure that that family is safe. So it's not always a charge. Their safety is number one. And you adding any resources? I know you mentioned the two here and then others uh, around the province. Any extra resources to deal with the what could be an influx of applications or? Uh, no, we, well, we have our intimate partner violence unit. They're kind of like the core hub of the RNC IPV unit. Uh, but we also have people trained right across the province in all jurisdictions. And we also have people trained within the criminal investigation division within the RNC. So we have a lot of people who are familiar with Claire's Law now and are willing to assist with it. And you see that unit is two people? We have two officers right now, but we have others who are assigned on a... a as well. many officers are assigned? Sure. We have a, what we call a special victim section, which encapsulates the intimate partner violence unit but all five are trained on this we've done uh, we're sending out a communique to our membership today advising them of the nuts and bolts of the legislation we've also done presentations to our membership uh, we have people trained across the province as well we're set up a little differently than the RNC because we're so uh, territorially spread out but uh, much the same approach and but we have five in our in our office right now that are monitoring this and participating in the dissemination of information to our trained investigators in the field. And I will add to that, that the RNC and the RCMP, uh, we're going to work together as well. So if there's information in their jurisdiction that we don't have, we will exchange information and assist one another. And uh, that is Superintendent, uh, sorry, that is Inspector Tammy Madden with the RNC. Before her, Superintendent Sharon Warren with the RNC in charge of CID. And, of course, RCMP Superintendent Kent Osmond with the RCMP speaking to the enactment of Claire's Law. Now, uh, a couple of quick things we have to get to before the news. Uh, first of all, um, uh, we're going to Richard Duggan with the news, and he's got a, um, a uh, bit of breaking news here on um, residents being advised of a phishing scam related to a privacy breach with the city of St. John. So Richard will have that. And Claudette, you have a quick note on Moose. I do. Um, we had a report call come in from a listener uh, 13 kilometers east of Deer Lake. An 18-wheeler reportedly just hit uh, a cow moose and its oh. calf. Apparently they're deceased now, but one young calf got away and ran into the woods. So it could always run back out onto the it highway could. as well. Yeah. So just once again, where was that exactly? 13 kilometers east of Deer Lake. 13 kilometers east of Deer Lake, just before you get there, or a long way from St. John's, whichever, depending on which way you're going. Um, okay, let's off to, uh, this is uh, News Talk with Brian Callahan, off to Richard Duggan and the news. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Thank you very much, Richard. Um, right back at it. So before the break and uh, earlier in the show, I mentioned I had a, a little chat with um, the federal NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, a short time ago. And that was just before he was heading into the House of Commons. And, um, you know, obviously it's, uh, it's wild times up there now, especially given the carbon tax hullabaloo. Um, we all know Atlantic Canada, most of Atlantic Canada was uh, given a bit of a break last week when um, the federal government decided to uh, remove 
the carbon tax from home heating fuel, oil. And so uh, because basically it burns worse, it's worse for the climate, uh, not as bad as other fuels, so they say. And um, uh, also some deals with heat pumps as well, you know, and this is geared a lot towards lower income people, especially with the uh, cold old winter uh, upon us. So a uh, few things on um, uh, Leader Singh's mind today. And uh, so that's where we started. I have a few questions, but I'm sure I've just, what's on your mind today? I'm thinking about the cost of living, uh, how expensive everything is for people. I'm really worried about that. I know people tell me all the time, like, I got a good job and I still can't figure out how to buy my groceries, pay my rent and mortgage or, or rent or mortgage or, or the rest of the bills. And on top of that, how do I heat my home this winter? It's tough. It's tough for a lot of people. I, I'm worried about that. And that's why I'm going to make sure we, we do everything we can to give people some relief. Right. Now, uh, let's talk about the elephant uh, on the phone line. Um, <laughs> what do you make of um, the prime minister or the federal government's um, uh, decision to carve out that piece for Atlantic Canada on the carbon tax on home heating fuels? Uh, we'll start with that first. Uh, what was your reaction initially to it? And I've, I imagine you had a pretty good heads up about it. Well, uh, you know, we didn't actually on this one. This is a bit of a surprise to us. I would say, first off, we know that Atlantic Canada needs relief. There's no question about it. People in Atlantic Canada are hurting. They need they need some relief this winter. And so we agree with the idea of relief. We just don't agree with an approach that is so divisive. Like why set up a scenario where it pits one region against another? Our plan was let's get the GST off of home heating for all heating, for all Canadians. That would be relief right away, immediate, and it would help everybody. It would help people no matter how they heat their home. And it would also help all parts of the, Canada, the country because there are some parts where they've had in place uh, a different system on carbon tax, like uh, all of Quebec, BC, and the Northwest Territories. They don't they don't have a carbon tax. They have a different system, and they don't they don't get any relief from this approach. So let's let's do something that helps everybody, and something where we also tie into that, making the the oil and gas companies that are making record profits, put in a windfall tax on them, like the United Kingdom has already done. Use that revenue to help people with. Uh, a relief this winter. Maybe they need to put in place, they want to switch to a heat pump, let's give them more help on that. Maybe they want to put in better insulation or, or new windows to keep their, their homes uh, warmer. Let's help them with that. Let's let's really bring people together to, to tackle the challenges in front of us and make sure life is more affordable. So off the top, um, of course, this goes to the heart of, of what you mentioned right off the top, you know, affordability for Canadians, yeah. um, especially this winter as it bears down on us. So, you know, the question would be, how does this decision by the Liberals, uh, and obviously not going as far as you wanted it to, or not doing the things you wanted them to do, how does this continue to affect the relationship you have, the NDP, with the federal Liberals? And at what point is it uh, too much and you have to break those ties? Well, it makes it clear that we, we got to keep on using that pow our power to force this government to do the right thing. They're left on their own. They keep on uh, making mistake after mistake, uh, finding ways to divide the country, and so we're needed more than ever. And, and what we've got, actually, we've got uh, in writing things that we're forcing this government to do. We're going to force them to bring in dental care. I remember speaking with, uh, with, an, with an older woman in, in St. John's. Mm -hmm. and she told me that she spent her whole life working hard, and now she's got pain in her teeth. She's, uh, it's so painful that if she eats at night, she can't sleep, and she just wants some dignity. She's like, I just need to be able to fix my teeth, and I can't afford it. For her, I promised her that I'm going to make sure by the end of this year she will be able to get her teeth fixed for free. Like our dental care should have always been a part of the healthcare system. So we're going to keep on using the power we have 
to force this government to do the right thing because on their own they're not going to do it. Should the um, uh, the carbon tax, what, what the Liberals have done, should it be applied to all fuels, uh, natural gas, heating, so that uh, you know Alberta and the other provinces who have uh, certainly got their backs up over this decision um, uh, to placate them? Should it be applied across the board, or how would you uh, see any kind of a middle ground here? People want fairness, and right now this is not fair. This approach does not feel fair, and, and that's a problem. We know that Atlantic Canada needs relief, no question about it. This is a cold winter in front of us, and people are worried about how they're going to heat their homes and how expensive it's going to be. That's a fair concern, and they need relief. Canadians across the country need relief as well, and so that's why I'm going back to the GSC off of home heating. That is an approach that's fair. That's an approach that would help all Canadians, no matter how you heat your home. We live in a cold country. It's cold for many months of the year. People need relief. That's a plan that would do it. We also know that people want to, for sure, do everything they can to fight the climate crisis, but it shouldn't be that it costs you more, that it's so expensive to do so. So that's what we're saying. Why don't we put in place an easier program so that if people want to do those things for their homes, like let's say they want to improve the insulation. Better insulation means it's going to be warmer in the winter and cooler in the summer. Let's let's help people with that. We want to make sure people have better windows to trap in the, the warm air. A lot of folks have leaky windows, and uh, it's too expensive to change those windows. It's so costly. Let's make it easier to do that. Let's help people make the right choices with incentives instead of this approach, which has all been about how do we punish people and force them to make a better choice when there is no better choice. Uh, I don't think that approach has been working. I want a different approach. Given that the Liberals haven't taken you up on the GST tax off home heating across Mm -hmm. the country, uh, what kind of pressure are you getting from your own party, your own members, uh, to break ties here, or at least to, I mean, it, it, they haven't done it. So at what point do you act on the things that the Liberals aren't acting on that you want them to, if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, uh, our, our, we just had a convention, and our, and our team, uh, our members made it really clear they want us to fight uh, like hell with the power that we have to get stuff done for people. So I'm, I'm reinvigorated, and that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to deliver on the dental care that people can actually go out and get their teeth fixed and seniors are going to get it done for free. Kids under 18, it's going to be free. Uh, That's important. We want to make that done. We're going to make that happen. Medication costs, I know that's a big deal for a lot of folks in the Atlantic provinces. We're going to get that done too, the big first steps on on pharmacare. So uh, I've been motivated by by seeing the inaction of the Liberals. It, It shows me that we need to be there. If we're not there, they're not going to do the right thing. And while we're there, we're forcing them to do things that they would not have done otherwise. So we're going to keep on using that power that we have to get stuff done. And I think about all the things that we're proud of in our country, the Medicare that we have, our CPP, our old age security. All of these things came in when new Democrats had power at the federal level to force the government to do it. So continuing on that tradition, that's what I want to do. I got into politics to make life better for people. That's what we're going to try to do. That is the federal NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, uh, there, um, saying he will continue to push um, a delicate balance again for him to, uh, you know, at what point is it too much? Is it against NDP, you know, and and his party and the pressure that he's getting? Um, Once again, we're keeping an eye, too, again, that uh, today is so-called, well, it's the uh, opposition motion day. So the conservatives are forcing a vote on a motion that calls on the government to freeze 
the federal carbon tax on all forms of home heating until the next election. So um, we'll be keeping an eye on that. We've got an hour and a half difference there. I think it's uh, not sure if they're in the QP or not. I'm sure I'll get a note. But uh, in any event, we'll see how that vote goes today and whether or not uh, certain MPs, such as maybe Avalon MP Ken McDonald, See which side he comes down on today. Um, after the break, the feds gave us last uh, gave us gave Atlantic Canada last week on the carbon tax and home heating fuel. I'm Brian Callahan here on News Talk. Uh, right up to the break here now. We'll be right back. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Uh, welcome back to the program. I don't know how I missed this one today. Uh, Richard Duggan, my colleague Richard Duggan, got the uh, sweet assignment uh, this morning. A tour of the Molson Brewery. Molson Coors <laughs> Brewery tour. Yeah, I could have used that this morning, although I would probably wouldn't have made it um, till this afternoon. But um, uh, Richard was there. Molson Brewery. And of course, Molson's have put a ton of work and money into that brewery. I, I say it because I live right across the street. I live right next door to the brewery. Uh, so I'm still not sure how I didn't get into that one. But in any event, uh, Richard uh, was down there today for an update on everything that they're doing down there, all towards, of course, upgrades and efficiency and investments in the local plant there um, for a better product, a better, cleaner product, of course, for the environment and everything else. $10 million bottle washer, apparently. $10 million. Uh, I'll leave that uh, to the comments online. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what we do with a $10 million. I watched that, actually, and it, um, they shut down the street, and they mention it here. We're going to hear from um, Sean Kennedy, General Manager of Atlantic Canada, Anthony Purchase, the VP of Commercial Operations, uh, and um, Chantal Butler, the VP of Finance and uh, Chief Financial Officer with Molson Coors Canada. Since 2007, we've invested $33 million in the St. John's Brewery. We've installed a new wet mill, new bottle and can fillers, new tunnel and flash pasteurizers, and uh, installed state-of-the-art can packer, which has eliminated our single-source package, single-use packaging, plastic packaging. Uh, and most recently, we've invested $10 million to upgrade and install a new bottle washer. In addition to these significant financial investments, we've also made a lot of process improvements to improve our sustainability and environmental impact as a brewery. Uh, we've made process changes to segregate waste to enhance recycling for materials such as aluminum, glass, paper, and cardboard. We've added a rejected bottle recovery line and many more process improvements, which has resulted in 69% less waste to the landfill from this St. John's Brewery. Our $10 million investment in the bottle washer has reduced our water consumption as well as electricity consumption and has improved our efficiency and maintenance costs. And perhaps more importantly, it's actually uh, a demonstration of our commitment from Molson Coors to continue to offer the Bob 21 bottle, which is a unique returnable bottle that is only available in the Newfoundland and Labrador province. Uh, Anthony Purchase, Vice President of Commercial Operations. I've uh, been with Molson for 18 years, and I'm thrilled to be here. Originally from here, back in my hometown. Um, and as thrilled as I am to be here, we're equally proud to continue to invest in the Newfoundland and Labrador brewing community. Uh, we're investing in this community uh, with purpose to fuel our strategy. Three years ago, we announced a revitalization strategy, uh, and that was a, a symbolic transitioning from an a, a industry-leading brewer to a, a, to a beverage company. 
Uh, and over the last three years of sustained growth, we've transitioned from revitalization into acceleration. Uh, and a lot of that has come back, uh, come on the back of the performance we've seen in this market and the purposeful investments we've made here to drive that performance. Um, so we are proud of the legacy we have in the market, proud of the investments we've made into the St. John's Brewery. Uh, part of our sustained share growth since 2021 has been a proud partnership with the Canadian Manufacturing and Exporters, where we proudly uh, have a logo on each one of our uh, numerous brands that we produce out of this facility. Uh, establishing that it was brewed right here um, in St. John's. So we have the utmost confidence in uh, the Newfoundland and Labrador brewing community, uh, and we're delighted to continue to invest uh, to deliver that, uh, that growth. Uh, I'm Sean Kennedy. I'm the general manager of Atlantic Canada Operations. Just to call right off the bat, this year, 2023, uh, marks a significant year for us in terms of service anniversaries for employees, where we have 230 years of combined service for all of our employees from sales into operations supply chain, and it's quite a remarkable number for, for a lot of long-term service employees. We also have two significant health and safety milestones that we achieved this year. Uh, in January of this year, we hit the ten-year, the eight-year mark, excuse me, without a lost time accident, which means that everybody who came to work went home that day the same way they showed up. Quite a remarkable feat, uh, meaning that no one got hurt on the job. We did have some cuts, scrapes, and bruises, but no one missed a day of work due to a lost time. We also have our Atlantic distribution team, which encompasses all four provinces, which is our forklift drivers, our warehouse operators, that have now gone 19 years without a lost time accident, which also means that they came to work every day and went home the same way they showed up. Another achievement we want to call out this year is we've gone 10 years without a quality accident this year in this brewery, meaning that our consumers and customers received the products the way we intended when we produced them. Everybody, every product was met our quality standards and there were no issues with anything that we produced. Sustainability-wise, uh, we've had a long uh, program of process improvements and capital investments to help us improve our zero waste to landfill initiatives. In particular, as Chantel mentioned, we've had a whole uh, plethora of projects where we segregated our waste, aluminum, glass, cardboard, plastic, and we decreased the amount of waste to landfill by over 69% since 2006 when we started tracking this KPI. We also have an enhanced bottle recovery line, so rejected bottles due to missing label or crowns are no longer going to Robin Hood Bay and, and the landfill. We recover those, we re-clean them, and reuse them where, where possible. And then through a series of automation of processes, we've decreased the amount of water we're using, the amount of uh, chemicals for cleaning, and the amount of CO2 that we use for our, for our counter pressure in our tanks and our overall uh, CO2 for, for filling of cans and bottles and kegs. Capital investments since 2007, as we've talked about, we've had over $33 million in, in major projects going back to 2007 when we installed our new Packer cell to improve our capability of how we offer our, our cans and bottles to our customers and consumers. We've upgraded our brewing process and, and our wet mill and our milling operations. We've en enhanced our new can filler and seamer, improved our capability of how we produce 355 and 473 mill cans. We installed a new Packer just uh, in the middle of COVID in 2021 giving us the opportunity to remove uh, all one-way plastics and high-cone rings, those rings that you would normally see. But we now are 100% away from plastics, and every can is offered in a closed recyclable container in cardboard. Most recently, as we talked about, was the, this year was a new installation of a bottle washer, which replaced a 51-year-old machine that was past its um, expiry date in terms of uh, being, being an efficient machine. So we have a new state-of-the-art bottle washer, which improved our water consumption, our utilities, improved productivity, and our health and safety with respect to handling of bottles and cleaning them before we fill. 
Um, a new keg line that we installed back in 2008 as well. Very efficient machine with next to zero losses on a daily basis. We produce between 30 and 50 kegs per hour, and we do that four days per week. A new can filler, again, state-of-the-art, replaced uh, an older machine that we had inherited from the Montreal Brewery back in the early 1980s. So a brand-new can filler and seamer. Our Muller Octopus, which is, which is a stretch wrapper, so when we palletize our full goods before they go to our distributors, we put a, several layers of stretch wrap around her so they don't break in transit. This is the newest state-of-the-art machine with full CSA guarding that keeps our employees safe as we operate. Our bottle labeler, which gave us the capability to put back labels on our bottles. So when we introduced some new brands like Mad Jack, Miller Lite, uh, Molson Ultra, we had nutritional data on the back of our bottles. This machine gave us the capability and enhanced the, uh, the older machine that we had in place. A Crohn's bottle filler as well, similar to a new can filler. We also installed a new bottle filler and a new crowner, which puts the caps on the top of the bottles. Very efficient machine, very low bottle of beer lost through that machine and very efficient operation overall fully enclosed fully guarded full csa guarding it's a brand new tunnel pasteurizer in the days of louis pasteur and when you pasteurize milk you also pasteurize beer to increase its shelf life and so it can last you know in the right conditions upwards of a year our standard is 180 days we pasteurize through our cans and bottles through this machine very efficient again and low energy and low utilities Similar to a tunnel pasteurizer where we pasteurize our bottles and cans, we also pasteurize our liquid before we keg it. Again, this increases the shelf life and, and final quality of our keg beer and has improved that facility, that part of our business as well. And as I mentioned, or as we all mentioned, in 2021, we installed a new can packer where we essentially had to take part of the building apart to get this machine in. This now allows us to offer 8-packs, 12s, 24s, and 355-mil cans, and 473-mil cans as well in a closed container that does not use any plastics from a sustainability perspective. And the coup de gras, the last piece of the puzzle so far this year, which we just commissioned and signed off last week, is a new bottle washer. Again, this is a, a behemoth of a machine that we can show you when we go up there. We had to take the, old, uh, the building out, shut down the brewery for 10 weeks to install this machine, when we uh, closed off the street on Circular Road, we worked with our neighbors to make sure that they still had passage in and out uh, to their houses. And this machine now is finally operational as of the end of fully operational and commissioned as of the end of last week. Where we're seeing water reduction, steam reductions, improved safety, and lower cost of maintenance to 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 keep it uh, maintained. And that was the uh, general manager of Atlantic Canada Operations with Molson Coors, Sean Kennedy. And I can attest to that last bit because I live on Circular Road. And uh, God love them. Every Christmas they give us a voucher because their trucks are coming back and forth all the time. Uh, Claudette, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but living next to a brewery, it has its ups and downs. And, you know, of all the information that he disseminated there from the cost of the installation of this and installation of that. Did you know that there's nutritional information on the back of a beer bottle? I had no idea. Oh, yeah, because I would always eat, look for an excuse. <laughs> oh, it has this in it? Great. It's I, healthy. News to me. <laughs> I've never looked at the That's back. That's so funny. Neither of my husband. My God, living next to a brewery, that would be his dream. Well, not <laughs> always, because I, not only do I live next to it now, but I went to school at St. Bonds and Brother uh -huh. Rice right there, and so the... 
the smell from the brewery in the oh, afternoons. It's right. in this walks down a walk down nostalgia lane every single time it belches out at the uh, in the late afternoon. But I digress. Uh, that's it for me. Um, I think Richard Duggan, Duggan is in for Linda tomorrow uh, for News Talk. I have an early shift, but uh, thanks very much, everyone, for listening to the program today. Thank you, Claudette, from behind the glass. And all I can say is drive safely. Arrive alive. B-O-C-M cares.